0: Hello, and welcome to Are We Nearly There Yet? I'm Professor Andrew Sherry, and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure.
1: These people were what we term in the, in the business as the good guys. They're guys who are so good, they don't need to show they're good, if you know what I mean. They, they, have, they always have time for young, young people, which, which I find is incredibly stimulating.
0: Today I'm talking to Steve Garwood, who became Professor of Structural Integrity at Imperial College London, following his retirement from Rolls-Royce Submarines, where he was Director for Engineering and Technology, and he's just become a non-executive director of the National Nuclear Laboratory. Steve lives in West Sussex and has one of the best views I've ever seen from a study window, a view over Shoreham Beach and the English Channel. Welcome, Steve, and thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks
1: very much, Andy. Good to talk to you.
0: So, Steve, you grew up in South Glamorgan and you went to Barry Boys School. Tell me a little bit about the young Steve at school. What was he like and what did he enjoy doing?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I grew up in Barry, which is uh, um, in South Wales, as you say. It's a a famous export in town, actually. So at school, we were indoctrinated with uh, the docks and the coal and steel community, which I guess started my interest in... uh, in uh, iron and steel and coal and industry in general, uh, and the doctor built in the 1930s by David Davis, and that's what they were famous for. Until of course Gavin and Stacy came along, which has totally usurped uh, any any mention of David Davis now. And Gavin and Barry is known for, and Barry Island is known for Gavin and Stacy. I went to boys the boys grammar school there, uh, but it turned comprehensive while I was there. In in, in fact. Um, I wasn't a great student, and unfortunately for me, although I was quite athletic, in my teens I became very short-sighted, and that has a big effect on a teenager, you know, and uh, I'm sort of minus nine or something, you know, so without glasses I can't see a thing, and um, that meant I couldn't play rugby or soccer very well, uh, so I ran in the Harriers, um, and uh, but I think that made me quite shy and inhibited to my teenage years.
0: Yeah, and you've carried on that running, haven't you? All all the way through your life you still run don't you?
1: I still run to this day yes yeah Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. and uh,
1: I think you know when you get to my elderly state um, Mm -hmm. unless you do things regularly um, you know I've given up squash (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a bit dangerous at my age and uh, and hockey I finished hockey when I was 60 um, but um, I still run and my daughter runs the difference is when I started running with my daughter uh, she was miles behind and now she's miles ahead. So uh,
0: that, <laughs> I've been through that transition as well. <laughs> so so at school, did you sort of enjoy the sciences or the more sort of arts, English, all that sort of stuff? Did you gravitate one way or, or the other or were both?
1: yeah I, I mean i've I've always been on the on the sciences right. i think and um uh my father was a reader at Cardiff University in metallurgy actually um so he spent his whole career there and um I suppose he must have had an influence, but I was always very interested in mechanical things and cars and i wasn't a great uh, student though i wasn't very um I, I didn't concentrate very hard in school. I did okay in my o levels and then went on to do double maths and physics. At my father's insistence, actually, because he wanted me to be an engineer. He always said, don't be a metallurgist. You know, it's a boring job. Be an engineer. It's much more exciting. So that's, so it was my dad, really, who um, obviously uh, my interest and my uh, penchant for science and maths. Um, but it was him that really suggested I be an engineer. Because to be honest, at school, careers uh, career advice was hopeless. They'd never heard of engineering, really. I mean, the teachers used to say you do maths or physics or chemistry or something. What's an engineer do? You know. And and to be honest, I didn't really know, except I thought it was something mechanical. You know. So that was, that was what I went for.
0: So you went to Imperial College.
1: Yes, and that was interesting because, um, as I say, I wasn't a great student. So um, my maths teacher, in particular, got very frustrated with me when I told him that um, I'd applied for Imperial College. He said to me, Well, oh, that's that's aiming a bit high, isn't it, boy?" And so I went along for interview there, and fortunately, uh, in those days, they give you English and maths tests and intelligence tests, and obviously I did okay in these, so I only had to get quite low grades, which was lucky, because I didn't do any work for my A-levels and just about got the grades. So I went into uh, mechanical engineering at uh, Imperial College.
0: You made it over the line, so you, so you took the trip into London. How did you find that sort of transition out of South Wales and into the busyness and, and the crowdedness of London.
1: There was I, quite shy, hardly been away from home, South Wales, small town and going to London. Uh, fortunately my sister lived in London at the time and I was very lucky in that um, I ended up in some accommodation on the Finchley Road called New College. It was actually a theological college and they didn't teach many theologues but through my uh, mother's connections with church she found out that the, the vicar that had gone to this college and they had spare rooms So that's how I ended up at this college. And it had a lot of spare rooms and there were other engineers from Imperial there. There were historians, there were musicians. So it was a very eclectic mix. And they had a squash court, so I learned to play squash. But London was quite an exciting time. And I have to say my first year was quite a culture shock. And I really grew up that first year away from home. The other major thing, I found contact lenses. So suddenly I could see, I could play sport, I could play football, play squash, and I've worn contact lenses ever since. That must have boosted your confidence as well. Uh, Hugely. It makes a huge difference. I mean, I would say to young people particularly, I mean, it's not so bad these days because contact lenses are universal, but um, I could tell you, if you were very short-sighted before contact lenses, it was quite inhibited. I used to be known as the Milky Bar kid at school because I had blonde hair as well, you know, so...
0: So you say you you, say you really sort of grew up in that first year as an undergraduate, and was that, was that growing up in terms of sort of practical things, you know, you learned how to cook, you learned how to look after yourself, get up in the morning, wash your clothes and iron or whatever, um, or, or were there things in which you were sort of changing in terms of understanding who you were, what you enjoyed, what you were good at, what you weren't good at, that sort of thing?
1: First of all, on the college side, I really understood that I really had to work. Um, and actually, I lived quite away from the college. My social life was in Hampstead. And then I went to college, did the work. And as you know, engineering degrees, you know, we had labs uh, every day virtually. You know, we had Wednesday afternoons off. The rest of the time, it was, it was nine to five or even later. And then I come back and find that all the history and English students had been sitting drinking coffee all day at, 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 in the accommodation. The other thing i found is that university is quite different from school and some people seem to peak you know they got very good a levels much better than me and yet they really struggled with the college work and i didn't that's a thing i don't think many people realize till they get to university that it's quite different education system than a school system
0: it is and you don't have quite so much structure and it's a much more sort of you've got to do it yourself and show the initiative and of course that sort of goes to the next level when you do a PhD, as you did. So you stayed on at Imperial College and then did a PhD. Um, and that's a different, you know, a different thing altogether from an undergraduate programme. How, how did you find that transition into research? There was a very inspiring lecturer called Cedric
1: Turner, who t- talked about fracture mechanics and fatigue and, and failures. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting stuff. At the end of my third year, nobody was recruiting, really. You know, I felt I had quite finished at college either. And the other thing I should say is that uh, i just um, met Rosie, who became my wife, and so there was incentives to stay in London, you know. (laughs) Uh, And so, um, anyway, the net result was that uh, I embarked on this PhD with Cedric Turner as my supervisor. He was dealing with crack arrest at the time, and fortuitously for me... um, The materials and the mechanical engineering had had got a joint grant to look at um, micro and macro aspects of fracture. Another three years in London. And those were exciting years, actually, because it was the three-day week. It was the IRA bombings. It was the power cuts, you know, the Ted Heath, the winter of discontent, all this sort of thing. Strangely enough, as a student, though, you just sort of accepted it and, you know... Um... You sort
0: of go on with it. I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, the PhD students now who I'm talking to over Zoom. They're in the COVID-19 world, of course, and, you know, wondering what that's going to do, you know, to their PhD and their research. Because, of course, they can't go in and use electron microscopes or fracture machines or, you know, instrons or whatever. So... um,
1: yeah, I was just going to say that um, I then joined this group and unfortunately Cedric Turner had a, a major heart attack and, and disappeared for most of my PhD. Fortunately, he recovered and uh, lived to a good old age. So I was sort of um, supervisor-less. But fortunately, this group had a postdoctorate research association called Neil Robinson, who'd come from working with Tetelman in the States. And he ro- really became my mentor. And uh, I started working on elastic plastic fracture mechanics, which is the subject of my PhD. And it was that was, area was really developing at the time. So I just happened to find I was really lucky. Really, I found a subject that I enjoyed doing and a topic which was just about really taking off. I developed my own PhD direction, really, which I think is ideal if you can. Um, I mean, it, it's always a you know the interaction between supervisor and uh, and student is is always an individual one, I think. So I wouldn't say my MOOC was the best, but it was the best for me.
0: And then you sort of continued in that sort of field of fracture mechanics in, in your first job, and you, you, you went and joined the Welding Institute. Um, so tell me about the first time you sort of walked through the the doors on your first day of work at the welding institute
1: it wasn't quite the shock that i i thought it uh, well it might have been had it been the first job i mean uh, i knew about the welding institute i'd done a welding course there as part of imperial college and imperial college uh, had a joint course fracture mechanics course which i lectured on so one of these guys said why don't you apply here so i did and got a job actually you know six months before my phd finished so i was well set up i didn't have that concern of a of a job. So I, I knew the site. The Weldon Institute then was a fantastic place to work, I have to say. They had fantastic equipment, some very good guys who were world leaders in, in fracture and fatigue and metallurgy. In, the, in those days, I mean, it's got a fantastic site now, but now it's a big sort of big buildings, but then it was more of a campus site. And on my first day, the lab supervisor took me under his wing and um, he knew I was an experimentalist. and so. Um, that sort of put me apart from the normal sort of project investigator because I spent an awful lot of time in the lab. Although, very frustratingly, I couldn't test anything because the technicians did the testing. All I could do was say what needed to be tested and how to do it. Which, being a hands-on guy through my PhD, I found quite difficult, but it worked.
0: Because those those technicians, uh, and I I remember it at UKAA, where I, I joined, were superb, superb experimentalists.
1: I encourage a number of the technicians to carry on with their studies. Of the course, a number of them had worse than me as students, but were very, very bright. And they went back to college, were often married, and then got their degrees, and then went on and did different things, you know, sort of late career developers. And I've always thought that, you know, there's the standard way of going through a, a career, but uh, there are, le- well, I wouldn't say late developers, it's more about, um, whether you're ready to develop at that at particular stages. So never give up on education. And, and it, Exactly. I think that's really
0: good advice. And it's there are different pathways, aren't there? You know, exactly. People yeah. So so you went to TWI, and, and one of the transitions that I always find interesting is the transition from actually doing the work yourself, like you were saying, the hands-on experimental work, to then defining the work that needs to be done and thinking about the proposals for the next phase of work and it's quite a transition that so did you sort of find yourself going through that sort of transition? I don't know whether I was again hugely
1: lucky because the said Neil Robinson went on to work for the nuclear installations inspectorate and at the time um, nuclear was really thought to be the way forward. We were developing the PWR technology And the NII were very interested in the performance of the reactor pressure vessel, which is made of a particular type of steel, and they were going to make it out of forgings. So uh, TWI were commissioned to look at the toughness of these steels and whether they'd be adequate for this very high integrity use. And so I walked into this job and immediately walked into a project. I think I've had a relationship with the regulator uh, ever since, actually. Um, And all the time I was at the Welding Institute, I did testing for them, Related to the nuclear area. But I also did failure investigations. Uh, I'd been at the Royal Institute about three years and it was an Easter. I remember it was a nice warm Easter. I was standing in my back garden and the phone rings. So I rushed in the house, picked up the phone, and they wanted someone to go out to Canada to see this broken ship, British ship, which had founded in Canada. But no one else wanted to ruin their Easter holidays. And so um, my wife sort of said, You can't miss this. You know, broken ship, you're always going on about fracture and you've got to go and see what's happening, you know. So off I went to Canada with a DTI inspector I to see this um, half a ship in a, in the St. John's Dock in uh, Newfoundland. That really was uh, a very formative event for me because i ended up giving evidence of the public inquiry i led the major failure investigation you know and it literally was like the ships that broke off you know um, the old liberty the, ships and, and the old liberty ships yes yeah, yes from a, se- a series of investigations my colleagues at twi were leading um, the development of uh, defect assessment procedures and they produced a sort of draft standard well i used this draft standard in court it was the first time it had been used in a court case to to indicate how these circumstances had come about to cause his ship to fail.
0: It was a sort of in at the deep end sort of thing, wasn't it? I mean, again, how did you feel when, I mean, it's sort of outside of your experience, so you were stepping outside of what you knew and were comfortable into a, a different world, something where you perhaps had more responsibility, you had to exercise judgment based on evidence and and, and all, all and, and communicate it, you know, clearly and effectively.
1: Fortunately, the uh, the the chap I went to um, Canada with uh, was was very supportive. I mean, uh, he he could have reacted. So, what what are the welding issues sending this uh, young whippersnapper with me for? But he was very supportive. Um, and then we when we got to the court case, I have to say I realised that I'm not the best evidence giver. Some people are much much better than me. Um, I got briefed by the QC, and of course I was acting for the referee. So although I got cross-examined by about eight different parties, none of the parties really, one of them tried to have a go at me, but the other parties supported me because um, it was to their advantage. And what I realised is that this was a game that I was not really fit to play, except in the in the most uh, structured way. Because the QCs, you know, they're an incredible, I mean, I had no idea. When I briefed the QC on this, after um, five hours of briefing, I would say he knew more about fracture mechanics than I did. And he explained to me that he wasn't interested in the technology at all. And when this case would finish, he'd forget it. What he was interested in, the structure of the argument. And that taught me a lot, actually, about science as well. It's not necessarily the detail. You you can use some of the disciplines that the QCs bring to the table, which is, is about structured arguments and about putting facts together.
0: That's really interesting, isn't it? And when when you are providing a perspective or a recommendation or something, either into government or into other companies or into your own company, often it is the structure of the argument that that, that is all important. And having that skill, that almost like a debating skill, actually, and things like boards and so on that you're you're on now, is incredibly important, isn't it?
1: Yes, and it, it taught me something which um, uh, I can pass on to if you like, other shy people. When you when you get into management circles, everyone is, you, you know, you have various tests about your personal characteristics, you know, and Myers-Briggs and Belbin and all these things. I always came out exactly the same, actually. Uh, I'm an INTJ, which I think is a sort of scientist, um, in, inhibited. And uh, what I also realised, um, and again, something which um, came to me later, uh, is that... Um, uh, I can sometimes see things very clearly, but i can 't always explain them very well So what I found at board level, if I could find somebody who maybe aside from the board or you know I got on quite well with because our personalities matched you know or or were complementary, if I could persuade them often they would they would take up the you know it was it's having an ally who understood where you 're going to because I would get very frustrated that i something so obvious
0: to me wasn't getting into the boat. That's, that's really really important isn't it to recognize and and sort of accept where you've got strengths and where you might have weaknesses and actually bringing people in who can um to work with you or on your behalf for your weaknesses you know it makes a huge difference doesn't it um i want to take you forward in your career a little bit now because you were 20 years at the welding institute it was quite a long time and then you moved to rolls-royce uh, Submarines. I'm just interested, what was the sort of attraction to you of that that change? Um, th- th-
1: this is a, a, a sort of a career point, which I guess many people find. I'd, I'd, um, uh, I'd, working at the Welding Institute, i come into contact with a lot of industrial companies, and uh, and you get a lot of job offers. But you get to about 45, then you're thinking, well, I'm not getting as many job offers as I used to get. And, you know, working at the Weldon Institute was a fantastic time. And, and I just thought, well... Am I going to stay here for the rest of my life? And I, I had been getting itchy feet because obviously I had 15 or 20 years left in my career. Was I going to stay at the Welding Institute all my life? I'd had an earlier office. I nearly went to California a few years before. And then actually it was one of my colleagues at the, the Weldon Institute uh, was contacted by a headhunter. And he gave them a series of names, which included mine. And um, this job was for our RNA. Rolls Royce and Associates. Rolls Royce had gone bust in the 70s and Rolls Royce and Associates had been split off to carry on managing and designing and making a nuclear steam raising plant for the nuclear submarines. This was an attractive job for a number of reasons. It was the first technical director job that they'd had and of course this was a chance now. I'd always been looking at failures and and dealing with the consequences of engineering this was a chance to join a company who actually did engineering what a fantastic opportunity and to join the board too so um was a big family discussion obviously to do this because it meant going to derby and my kids were teenagers they were in school they didn't want to go to derby my wife was a teacher so it meant actually uh week for many years which was quite a a strain on family life but my wife put up with it the kids uh, sort of gave me a hard time at weekends but um, there we are so I joined up Boltois and Associates
0: right so you, you sort of made you made it work really as a family and that that can be that that balance between work and family and how you make it you know fit together is not always straightforward is it so you you, you, had, you were quite flexible in how you you did that
1: Yes, I mean, uh, it was, it was my my wife took the bunt, I have to say, um, yeah, you know, yeah. so, so for eight years I, I weekended, um, eventually she came to live in Derby and uh, worked, she weekended for a couple of years and thought, uh, don't fancy this very much, so she actually gave up teaching, which was the right time for her, and moved to Derby, so we lived in Derby for quite a few years uh, yes. later on in my career there.
0: Right. And that that transition from TWI into Rolls-Royce Associates, can you say a little bit about the different cultures of the organisation? Did did it feel different? Did it operate differently? Were there different sort of values and behaviours and that sort of thing?
1: Yes, totally different. Uh, I mean, TWI was a very consultative place. I mean, TWI probably still is, I think, (laughs) a technology-based organisation. In other words, it used its technology to derive its income. In fact, whenever they tried to do anything like manufacturing, it usually went wrong because they weren't really set up to to do that. Rolls-Royce Associates, obviously, were dealing with with manufacturing the plant and designing the plant for the nuclear operation. But on the aerospace side of things, of course, a major product-based company Quite different, because technology there is a provider. It's not the be-on-and-end-all. You only need technology to deliver your next product. And so it, has, it had a completely different feel um, to, uh, you know, the importance of technology in the company was huge, for a company like Rolls-Royce, but in a different way. It wasn't the income generator. It was the provider of the knowledge. And so you choose the technologies which you think were going to give you an advantage and not use the technologies which you could buy in or... To the scientists, you were either popular or unpopular, depending on whether your technology was uh, appropriate to the next product development. <laughs> and so quite quite different. And the culture in the company changed totally, actually. Uh, it was very macho in those days. Not Strangely enough, not Rolls-Royce and Associates, but my later jobs in Rolls-Royce, I moved around the company quite a bit. And the company... Uh, certainly had, I wouldn't say there were out-and-out out bullies, but it was a macho environment and, and a very male-centred environment too. So it, it's changed quite a lot. And in fact, uh, the CEO, Sir John Rose, he he put in place many mechanisms with his HR team to to change the culture of the company to be much more a uh, conciliatory type of thing and and, and um, understanding what the, the value of of people and their career development rather than uh, producing clones of um, of the then managers you know
0: mm. so what what, so what parts of the, the your time at Rolls Royce did you find uh, you really enjoyed and were there things that you found particularly difficult and how did you cope with that.
1: Yes, the other thing in the big company, I mean, you know, I'd gone from a... TWI is much bigger these days, but um, it was quite a, quite a small organisation, really, and I knew very much everybody there. When I joined RRNA, that was uh, about 1,200 people, so it was a, it was a bigger organisation. But again, small enough and welcoming enough and almost not quite a family, but everyone had been there for years, you know, and, and I have to say they were all... Um, and the i met a lot of mod people including the the chairman of uh, of NNL at the time who's uh, i think he was a lieutenant commander um so i knew i started to know a lot of the navy people as well which served me well later in my my career i have to say and uh, developing a relationship with the mod and the navy but then of course nothing nothing stays the same in a big company and so um you know after just 2 years World Choice and Associates ceased to exist. It was, it was combined into another part of the company. I stayed as the engineering technology director. And then two years later, I went for a job as director of technology in the company as the PLC, as the centre of the company. And that job was my perfect job. Absolutely, my perfect job. It had sort of five or six hundred technologists uh, around the world, which I was responsible for developing the strategies for the for the company. Working with a guy called Vic Parker, who was the project director of research and technology. So he did the projects. I did the people side and the labs, and it was it was a perfect job. And fortunately for me, September the eleventh came along, and the company, uh, as it's done just recently with COVID, actually uh, hit a major hurdle which it wasn't expecting and um, it was my biggest management challenge uh, in my career. I then had to lose a third of my staff, I had to change jobs, I went into the operational side of the business and I learnt a lot then because about managing people, working with HR, trying to minimise the disruption to individuals and to the company to be fair with individuals and transparent what was going to happen to them. I learnt a lot as a manager and a person actually about listening skills and and being fair to people whilst trying to do the best for the company as
0: well. Yeah that's that's that, that's tough isn't it and then then you sort of went full circle and you went back into academia as a professor of structural integrity at Imperial College and
1: well uh, just, I mean, obviously, I, uh, I changed my job from director of technology, and in, 19, in 2006, rather, um, I, I'd, I'd been working with a few well-known people, actually, who all had an influence on me. Uh, Professor Mike Burdekin, uh, Professor John Nott, Professor Brian Eyre, who'd uh, been chairman of UKAA, and um, uh, I knew them all. They were advisory, on advisory boards to Rolls-Royce, so I worked with them, you know, and uh, advising the mod, and they advised the mod that, really, if we were going for a new set of submarines, we needed a new power plant. And so I went back to submarines to help build the team to um, to to do that power plant. And I realised then that I was too old to lead this in terms of an engineering lead. So my job was to be head of the technical authority and to, to promote young guys who were going to see this project through. Because, you know, a nuclear project, as you, as you know, Andrew, is... Decades, so you don't you don't want to put fifty odd year olds in charge of that because you know they're they're not going to see the project through. So you've got to balance the team with youngsters, and that revitalised the whole company. Actually, uh, the nuclear side of the business, um, doing that. Uh, but then, as you say, um, so um, it came up to my normal retirement age, and then I had to think about what I was going to do next. I'd already recruited my um, with with the help of HR recruited my successor. So I had a lovely transition, actually, where I could set up, which i have been trying to do for 12 years, the University Technical Centres at Manchester and Imperial. Did that, and then was fortunate enough to be asked back to Imperial part-time to help, you know, sort of make sure it it got launched properly and went, went uh, you know, into a strong position.
0: That, that's a, lot, it's a nice symmetry, isn't it, having gone there from... From Barry done your undergraduate in your research to go out and do a fantastic career at, at the welding institute and then rolls royce and all the roles you had but, but to come back to Imperial College and work with students again and and in research and lecturing it must have been um, must have been great
1: yeah i mean uh, ideal um, you know if you have to invite it it's um... You know, full circle. Um, yeah. I, I think there's some quote about um, you know you uh, you don't realise when you've been travelling the world and then you get home you don't you, you realise that what well, you've missed sort of thing. <laughs> um, although I have to say uh, it was yeah. quite a shock going back to academia because it, a it had changed yes and mm-hmm. uh, and b it was totally different than working in a company.
0: Uh, yeah, another culture, isn't it? Another culture, another culture yeah. altogether. That's right. That's right. So you mentioned about some of the, the, the people and you've mentioned some of the, the events in your career. If you were to look at the the youngster without contact lenses, you know, just <laughs> just scraped his A-levels to go and do mechanical engineering at Imperial College London, what, what would be the advice that you'd give the young Steve, do you think?
1: That's a difficult one, isn't it? Because, you know, if I'd got a grade or two lower and hadn't gone to Imperial, my career would have been entirely different. If my dad hadn't encouraged me to do engineering, I was lucky enough to find something I happened to really enjoy and be good at. I think that's why I became much more academically focused, you know, because I actually found something I enjoyed rather than it being a chore. And that's, that's the big difference between school and university, I think. And if you can find a subject that you really love... But, I, I mean, um, I, I did this by accident, actually. But my advice strongly to people who have a technical bent is to never quite give that up. Through so my career, I've seen other guys who've gone into management because, initially, management is it gets you a higher profile quicker. But if you move away from your technology base, if you're fundamentally a technologist, that's, that's uh, I, I mean, to the frustration of some of my bosses, actually, I kept linked with the technology and this is a very interesting point because my immediate bosses uh, found that frustrating because they wanted me to do other things. My bosses' bosses found that very um, useful for the company because I was making contacts outside uh, the immediate uh, periphery. So I was a much more value to my bosses' bosses than my immediate bosses at that time in my career. And that I learnt as well, because later on, when I moved up the tree, I picked people out who were often frustrated or were given low marks by their immediate boss, but I saw something in them, picked them out, gave them a different job. There's a few of them who can tell you who they are. <laughs> I won't mention any names. And they have done very, very well. And I think the this is um, a discriminator, actually, between people at the executive level who can spot people who can operate at a different level, Whereas the, the management population often can't because they, they basically want their staff to do what their job is, which is to, to yeah. manage yeah, the business. That's right.
0: That's right. That's right. And that's really satisfying, actually, isn't it? Seeing those people whose careers you've you know, had a hand in and seeing them succeed in, uh, you know, later life and so on.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you see that my, my wife was a teacher and uh, she influenced, without realising it, I think, um, hundreds of people. And and the people that influenced me, I mean, many of them were, you know, influenced me for my entire career, people like Mike Burdick and John Knott. But other people I met relatively briefly and yet were a huge influence. I, I met Paul Paris and he put me up for a weekend in in, in America and I always remember that. I, I met Sir John Collier, who was president of the Weldon Institute a few times and he, all these people were what we term in the in the business as the good guys. They're guys who are so good they don't need to show they're good, if you know what I mean. They, they have always have time for young young people, which, which I find is incredibly stimulating.
0: Oh, it is, absolutely, and it's a privilege, isn't it, when you look back and you think about those people and the time they spent with you. You hope, actually, that you can then spend time with younger people, because sometimes they look at you in the same way as we looked at them, so... But um... well, Steve, that's been really interesting. Thank you so much for your time chatting through you know your time at university and careers and so on it's been fascinating i'm sure people will find it really interesting and take some real points of learning from it so thank you
1: it's been a pleasure and as my mum used to say um always remember on the way up you might meet the same people on the way down so respect everybody
0: (laughs) absolutely right absolutely right thanks 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 andrew If you've enjoyed this podcast, to help others enjoy it too, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, and don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.